Hey everyone, Michelle Seidling here with another episode of Food Experience Unplugged. Today we're exploring eating disorders and how to rebuild your relationship with food after an eating disorder. Here to help us do that is Carol Hansen, a conscious wardrobe stylist based in the UK. Carol not only overcame her eating disorder many years ago, but she also let that experience heavily influence her relationship with food as well as her life and career choices. Carol Hansen, welcome to Food Experience Unplugged. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Michelle. I'm really looking forward to this. Oh, well, we are so happy to have you and to hear about all of your different experiences with struggling with eating disorders and what a vibrant life you you live now. And we're really looking forward to, to hearing more. But to begin with, Tell us about what what are you doing now? You describe yourself on your, your website as a conscious wardrobe stylist. So tell us a little bit about that. I inspire women who have a wardrobe full of clothes but nothing to wear. So I help them to look and feel fabulous every time they get dressed. But I do it in, um, in a conscious way in the sense that I, in 2018, I was doing some research for a blog. Um, and I've never been one to buy um fast fashion or um fashion in bulk to me quality is far more important than quantity when i'm looking for clothes but researching this blog which is a um i'd entitled the environmental cost of your wardrobe made me realize just how bad the fashion industry is for the planet um and so therefore i started doing some more research over that summer and to be honest it got me quite depressed um and that's why i I thought, well, I've had to do quite a lot of digging to find out this information, and I'm fairly in tune with what's going on in terms of clothes and and fashion and so on. I wonder how much everybody else knows. Um, And it was was sort of asking questions on social media and asking questions among my my community that made me realise that there is a lack of awareness. And of course, it um, it suits a lot of retailers and brands to keep that lack of awareness away from us. And so that's why I use my styling. My approach is very much to work with clients to make more of what they've got in their wardrobes. And if they do um, purchase clothes, then to do it in a conscious way, um, to maybe consider buying sustainable brands if they can, if they have the budget for it, maybe um, giving clothes a longer life by um, buying from consignment stores, um, as you guys call, guys call them over in the US, or from um, charity or thrift stores. Um, so we're just being more conscious about our purchases. Mm, interesting. I love that. I love how you're you're helping the environment and you're helping people to to be in touch with with their style, with their how can they be more more wardrobe conscious. Absolutely. But the the whole thing boils down to feeling confident about yourself and the way that you put you express yourself and recognizing that we all have an amazing, unique body. And what we need to do is focus on the bits that we love and play down the bits that we're not so keen on. Mm, interesting. Yes. And I love how you bring that out, you know, in your work, of course, and also on your site, because you had mentioned we're talking today about your experiences, you know, battling an eating disorder over many years. But you also really highlight it as um, a tool with um, with body image, with with styling on your website. And why did you choose to really, really spotlight that aspect of your your experiences? 
it was it well kind of it was an a, an awakening that I had because in 2013 I um, I bought a business um, as you do with no experience in fashion e-commerce or marketing I went out and bought an existing online boutique. Um, call it a senior moment, if you like. Um, and as I started to try and run that business and um, build brand awareness online and, and offline as well, although it was a virtual boutique, I found that I was attracting more and more women who wanted to talk to me, not about clothes per se or buying clothes, but the issues they had with clothing, the issues they had around nobody makes anything for me. Um, I don't know what suits me. Nothing looks right. And they weren't all buying objections, although some of them, you know, could have been dressed up as that. But when I looked into it a bit further and started digging into it and saying, well, if there's this many people, this many women telling me these things, there's got to be something more to it than simply about the clothes. And I did some more research and it really came down to the fact how many women suffer from body confidence issues. And it was a real light bulb moment for me. So there I was running this boutique and then suddenly coming to this awakening um, uh, and understanding how extensive the issues were with body confidence. And then I put the two together in terms of my own experience of what I'd been through um, for over 20 years with an eating disorder. And suddenly thought, well, maybe I can use that experience and my feelings now about my body but that empathy that I have when women look in the mirror and say I don't like what I see and it's not what everybody else sees about them either um, and see how I can use that to basically work with women to help them feel more confident about themselves so in a long-winded way that's why I play out that side about and talk about my eating disorder because I feel it does give me an empathy with the people that I'm helping that that don't like what they see in the mirror. Mm. Yes. And so do you, as you're consulting with people, do you kind of, do you talk about their, their backgrounds as well, or, or is it more, you know, strictly fashion oriented? That depends. Um, but yes, I mean, people's um, feelings about the way that they feel about themselves is important because you can't get that confidence unless you acknowledge those feelings um, in that sense. But the way that I do it when I'm working with people um, and we're looking at, I, I ask them to tell me, first of all, what parts of their body is it that they actually love and they like? And some of them might struggle with that for a while. Um, but we, we delve down on it. And even if they can only get to the point where they're saying maybe, oh, well, okay, I like my eyes. Right, let's focus on that. Let's look at what colors are gonna bring the colors of your eyes out and make your eyes sparkle. Let's look at what necklines will draw attention to your eyes, maybe what accessories we can use. Now tell me, when we've, we've kind of enhanced the bits that you do like, let's look at the bits you're not so keen on and how we can play those down. And some of that will come back down to um, background and their attitude towards clothing um, and their approach towards their body. But I'm, I'm not a trained counsellor in eating disorders or um, body dysmorphia or anything like that. So I am also careful not to get myself going down a route like that. I would rather refer someone on if I believe that they've got, um, they've got issues or they need to, to talk to someone. What I'm all about is showing them how they can work with their lovely amazing unique bodies to showcase them and make them look fabulous and not to feel the way that they do about themselves if that makes sense it does i love that i love how you're really spotlighting helping them to have a positive body image 
And you undoubtedly have that with your current work and your your style. Um, mm-hmm. But it wasn't always like that. So could maybe let's kind of flash back a little bit to to your when you first were struggling, struggling with food, struggling with an eating disorder. Um, will you tell us a little bit about how that how that got started and, and a little bit about the struggles? I um, I had always been um, a little bit overweight as um, as a teenager, but it was you know what we used to term in those days as puffy fat, if you like, and it was it was a lot to do with um, ch- changing hormones and, and all the rest of it. But it was also to do with the fact that when um, up until the age of six, I hadn't really eaten properly, and most of that was or that wasn't to do with an eating disorder or how I felt about myself. Um, that was to do with the fact I had um, really bad tonsillitis and I, it, at the age of six I finally had my my tonsils removed um, and so all of, after that all of a sudden I developed an appetite and and could eat again so I do believe at that stage that my mum was so excited bless her that I could eat again and there wasn't the same nutritional guidelines and, and advice that there is um, these days and I won't say that she overfed me but she encouraged me to eat so there was a there wasn't a real check on what I was eating to a degree so yes I probably put on a little bit of extra weight from that um but then I went through an awful lot of trauma when I was a teenager so um excuse me on the day before my um 14th birthday um my mother tried to commit suicide and she took an overdose and I came home my father and I'd gone shopping and we came home and I found her Wow, I'm so sorry. Well, please don't worry about it because it kind of explains the backstory. Um, and um, and she she was she was she'd taken an overdose, and all she could basically say, which wasn't very coherent, was it was the best birthday present that she could give me. And um, she was then um, she was suffering from depression. She had been suffering from depression basically since I think for a very long time, probably since she'd become an adult herself. Um, but it, 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 she'd had a particularly bad episode and then she was hospitalized for about a year. And the way that I dealt with it, and I was an only child, was to really bury myself in my schoolwork um, and to kind of close myself off a bit. And I think it wasn't really until I was 17 that that, that it, maybe it was PTSD, I don't know, but that's when my eating disorder kind of manifested itself. And when I look back now, I can see that that was that was part of it was that going through that trauma as a teenager and the other thing was that my father bless his heart I idolized my father both my parents have have passed on now um but he put an awful lot of pressure on me in a in a nice way not in a bullying way um but he'd been someone who'd not really fulfilled his school potential he'd left school as soon as he possibly could and signed up for national service um, whereas he could have gone on quite easily and gone to university. So he, in a sense, he he kind of then lived that expectation out through me um, and put a lot of pressure on me, again, when it came to studying and getting great results. Um, and I think those two combined pressures um, didn't help. And then at the point when I um, met the guy who's now my husband, um, and he remarked that, um, you know, he, He'd, um, he could see a little bit of um, puppy fat, what's that, around my waist, my rib line. That's what then was the absolute trigger for my eating disorder. And it went downhill from there. Um, 
And I was very clever at hiding it. Um, I was very clever at kind of trying to make out that there was nothing wrong. Um, and people did start getting worried about me. Um, but I, but by then, I, you know, as I say, it started when I was about 17, but it wasn't long after that that I turned 18. Um, and by then it was pretty much down to me. I was an adult. It wasn't as though my parents could do an awful lot about it. Um, and um, I did seek help when I was in my early 20s. Um, but uh, they, it got to the stage, and in, in those days, I mean, this was back in the 80s, and there wasn't an awful lot of counselling or um, support around the side of the mental health side with regard to it. It was about the physical side and what, how do we, um, how do we get someone eating again and up to a healthy weight? And I appreciate that with, um, with extreme cases of eating disorders now they focus on that side or certainly do in the UK before they then seem to get to the uh, the mental health side and um because it was so much about the physical side and I wasn't ready to accept that change at that stage I basically walked out of the treatments and said no that's it I'm going to deal with this myself and that's to my way of thinking is why I took so long 23 years to kind of really get over that eating disorder um, and the obsession that I had, absolute obsession that I had with physical fitness as well, and the way that I drove my body through physical fitness. Um, it was an obsession. It was an addiction. So, yeah, it was a long road to recovery. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And how, um, now you mentioned you had anorexia, which yeah. is basically you're, you're not eating, but, but you, you have a, an excess of, of exercise and and so forth. Yep. And there was, I think there was an element of bulimia in there as well, because I was also purging myself. So, you know, it was, it was a whole um, really unhealthy attitude towards it. And it was, it was that classic getting back control in my life. Mm. So how did, I mean, you, of course, you, you don't eat much and whatever you do, you, you purge, but what do you feel was your, your relationship with food at that time? How did you feel about that? Uh, that's really interesting. I there were certain foods I certainly wouldn't eat um, because I considered that they were far too high fat or too too high sugar. Um, and certainly in the in the eighties, the, the the whole food movement, certainly here in the UK, became a lot more um, prevalent, well known, publicised. Um, and then there was a, the various things like it was all about fiber and, you know, the food fads that, that we all had in those days. So it was very much about me cooking healthily for people. I had to be in control in the kitchen. You know, I hated my husband cooking a meal for us. Um, and it was you eat. It was very much you eat my way or you don't eat in that sense from from that point of view. And again, it's about control, isn't it? And it's about being able to monitor. But I was, I loved cooking. And I have read since that there's an awful lot of people that do go through eating disorders that do love cooking um, and preparing food. And I suppose, again, it's partly to do with having that control over it. But it's also about, you know, being able to prepare, knowing what's going into the food. Um, I And I used to do an awful lot of cooking, but it, it was very much around, uh, as the fashion was then, low fat, low calorie um and um eating healthily eating whole foods and of course my portion sizes weren't great either from that point of view 
Um, and I would restrict, uh, there were certain foods, as I said, I just wouldn't eat at all. I would restrict. Mm -hmm. So you loved cooking, you loved making a variety of different things, but when it came to the eating part, you know, you yourself, um, what, what was the, I guess, if you recall, what, what were your, your thought processes in that? You loved the cooking. You yourself didn't love to eat, but perhaps you enjoyed sharing that food with others. Absolutely. Yeah, um, very definitely. Um, but it was always me who would be serving up as well. So that portion control was very small. And what was going through my head at that time was, well, if you do eat too much, then you can just purge it afterwards. So it's kind of, again, it, there was a there was a two edged sword going on it uh, that whole process and I can even remember coming um, with a friend's barbecue we we'd met them for um, lunch and and then we were going to have a barbecue later on in the evening and I came home in that in the afternoon on the premise that I had to feed the cat um, but I put my running shorts yeah but the, the crazy thing is I then put my running shorts on and went out for a run so that I could then go back and enjoy the barbecue afterwards I mean how crazy as that but that was a kind of way that I thought about it all the time and it was I had to weigh myself every morning when I got up and if the scales had gone down then that was great I had a good day if the scales had gone up even if it was like a few ounces then that wasn't great news if it stayed the same then okay I could cope with it so there was a control 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 all of the time mm, okay and that so what was you now you had that for you mentioned over 20 years what was the, what was the tipping point that led you to finally get the treatment that you needed get the get the help that you needed um there wasn't a tipping point and there wasn't a getting the help at the end of it I came out mm -hmm. of it although I got the help in the 80s when I was I really was struggling at the beginning I didn't mm -hmm. go back and see doctors after that um there were a couple of milestone moments I guess and I think the first one of those was in um, 91 when um, we was starting to try to have a family and I couldn't get pregnant. Um, and we started on the infertility route and then my husband and I just didn't feel right going on the infertility route. It didn't, it, pardon me, it felt too invasive. We felt like we were on a machine. Um, but as a result of that, they started to, do, to look at doing some more tests because it was me. Um, I couldn't have children. Um, and um, they then discovered that I'd actually had my menopause when I was in my early 20s. Mm. They could never tell me whether that was as a result of my eating or whether that was a genetic um, predisposition that I'd had. Um, but of course, I always carried it around that it was my eating and what I'd done to my own body. And so I suppose that was that was the first kind of wake up call, if you like. Um, the second wake up call was really um, in the early 2000s. And that was about how I was doing so much physical damage to my body. Um, and it wasn't to do with the eating, the purging side of it so much. It was to do with the exercise. Now, I was exercising seven days a week. I would go out for a run first thing in the morning. I would then go for a swim. And I would then do a step aerobics class in the evening. So mm. I was really putting my body through it. All of it was high impact. All of it was um, designed to burn lots of calories. There was no balance in there at all. Um, and I was unrelenting. It didn't matter whether I was sick. Um, I even went running when I had a plaster cast on my arm when I, I'd broken my wrist, for God's sake. Um, 
And um, it, but it was an obsession. But my body was uh, my body was coming up with some aches and pains, and I would kind of go, "Oh, I can work through that." But it wasn't really until two thousand and three when um, we were um, abroad at the time. We we're in France, and um, I'd gone out running first thing in the ho- from the hotel in the morning, and my hamstrings literally went into spasm. It, they seized up so much I couldn't even walk, let alone run. And that to me was probably the biggest wake up call in terms of what damage I was doing to myself and the the fact that I had to reconsider and think about it. Um, Because if my body wasn't going to carry me, then, you know, that was it was a big aspect of my life that wasn't wasn't working properly. Um, And I think it it was really from that point on when I started, again, another big wake up call that I um, I started to progress and progress in the right way as well. Mm. Okay, so progressing in the right way in terms of um, with change, what um, different changes did you make following that as being being a little a wake up call, as you say, what yeah. what changes and what what challenges did you have as you kind of went forward and, and overcame lots, that? Lots of challenges because I wasn't giving up the exercise and I was finding new ways to exercise then. So. <laughs> Um, but also I was recognizing that I had to kind of calm down. I went for treatment with God knows how many different, um, physiotherapists and sports physios and consultants and da, da, da. And, and I kept focusing on that physical fact that, you know, I, I had problems with, um, pain in my legs. It wasn't by then it it was kind of, this wasn't anything to do with the eating. I just had to keep exercising. Um, but that was my way of controlling weight, but it was also about my mental health as well because I strongly believe that exercise was the only thing that would help my mental health um and I do remember going to see one guy um in London and he just looked at me and and he obviously got the measure of me and he was a little bit brutal and he said you know what would what would actually cure you and make you better would be simply to give up exercise for three months and I just went well I'm not going to do that (laughs) um but it was it it was then getting help um again with sort of sports rehab type people and then actually going and getting myself a personal trainer who uh, you know I told everything to him and um and basically he helped me get a much more balanced aspect um or approach should I say rather an aspect a much more balanced approach um to my to my life so that within um a short while of working with him I could actually go a day without exercise and it wasn't killing me um and so therefore again it was it was part of the gradual being able to accept it and and within all that was also being able to accept that um and this took some time as well that I'd actually gone up a dress size and I, I think part of it was acknowledging that I'd actually got a bust for the first time in my adult life and that actually felt quite good if that doesn't sound stupid um, I felt more feminine. Um, when I'd been told um, that I couldn't have children, I'd, um, I'd been put on um, HRT back in 91. And that also helped me as well. As I said, that was a milestone. Um, being put on HRT actually made me feel um, more feminine, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, and then as I say, then I acknowledged that I, I was starting to develop a bust and I actually felt good as opposed to... Um, yeah, me resenting that I was putting on a bit of weight and so therefore I was developing a bust so it was a really kind of long slow drawn out process um but yeah now I just I can I won't say I can take or leave exercise it's still important to me 
Um, I eat healthily, but I'm not counting calories. Um, I'm not eating, I'm not restricting myself in terms of food intake. Um, and my weight doesn't bother me. Now, as you were going through those challenges, you know, with the exercise and things like that, what, how did your relationship with food change during that time? I think at first, I think it, I, I restricted my intake to start with more. If I felt I couldn't exercise up to my full extent, mm-hmm. um, then I was certainly more cautious about what I was eating. Um, and I was, um, yeah, so I was I was trying to balance the two out because there was this rationale that was going on with me that said, if you can't exercise as much, if you can't burn so many calories, then you've got to be careful about what you're eating as well. <laughs> you know, it was, it was absolutely crazy from that point of view. So yeah, there was a, there was an adjustment there, but equally, what I would say now is that I I eat um, and I eat to fuel my body to do the amazing things that it can do. So it's it's a totally different relationship with with food. Interesting. Now, you um, did you seek any kind of medical assistance with on the food side? No, not okay. after the initial kind of as I said back in the nineteen eighties. Um, after that, when I walked out of the, the consultant mm-hmm. studio or um, consulting room and said, right, I'm not doing this anymore, um, then no, I didn't. And so it was, and, and I think that's a lot of the reason why it took me so darn long to, um, you know, to come to terms with everything and to feel and have a good relationship with my body. Mm, interesting. And they have, well, you were, you were working with different uh professionals with regard to the exercise did so did food come up at all in those discussions and the therapy that they recommended or anything like that no because they were treat they may have recognized and i i had put on a bit of weight um by the time i got to that stage where i was i was with professionals so um who were helping treat the kind of all the hamstrings the aches and pains the hip pains all of that kind of stuff so i had put on a bit of weight i didn't look as though I was suffering from an eating disorder by that stage. Um, but I still didn't have the right, you know, at that stage, even though I got the, I got the physical pain and I still didn't have the right attitude towards food, but I didn't look as though I was suffering from um, anorexia as I did when I was younger. Mm. Okay. So is, is that um, other than, um, other than the sort of treatment that I'd had when I was put on HRT and stuff like that and encouraged to eat more calcium and, yada yada and all the things that they talked about to um because they were concerned about osteoporosis because I'd had my um, menopause so young um and also because I was um underweight underweight at that stage Mm. okay so the so how did that relationship with food how did you really make the transition to food is okay food is helping me that type of thing. If you, you didn't get medical help, but you were also, you're kind of working it out yourself. You were going through some type of transition. Tell us a little bit about that. I think it was very much about kind of giving myself permission that it was okay to be okay about food. It was about mindset and it was gradual. Um, and I gradually let my husband starts coming to the kitchen and do uh, and cook food. He's actually a really good cook. Um, <laughs> And, um, and so it was, it, it was much more gradual. I mean, one of the things that I used to do was, um, I would be very specific about what foods I would eat it during the day, 
so that it looked more normal at night, if you see what I mean, when, when he and I ate together, which again is all about that control and manipulation, isn't it? Um, but that even that gradually um, kind of eased, but it, it was so gradual, it was almost like I, I just had to kind of reset the clock and do it, do it at my pace and under my terms, if that makes sense. Mm, it does. So I I like the the gradual. Interesting that you were able to do that you, that yourself. A lot of people with eating disorders they uh, need you know different uh, f- the food aspect of medical assistance, but you were able to really to really work that out in, in amongst yourself. So that's that's super. That's great, and that's really I'm glad that you you had the support of your husband and perhaps other family members as well. Yeah, I mean, definitely my husband. I mean, we've um, we've been married now nearly um, thirty nine years. So you know, he he's seen <laughs> he really has been a rock for me um, from that point of view. Um, and yes, my parents when they were alive as well, and close friends that I uh, that were aware that I had a problem were very supportive too. But it wasn't something that we um, we really discussed. So it really was my parents and my husband, but more my husband than anything else in terms of the, the support. Yes, we would have arguments about it at times. Absolutely. You know, because he would get utterly frustrated um, that he couldn't help me and that, you know, he was seeing me trying to destroy myself uh, in, in that sense. And um, it, it created an awful lot of stress and tension in the early days of our marriage. But we got through it. And the fact that we're still together says something. <laughs> Definitely. So, and you're now that transition. Have, now, have you career wise, have you always been in fashion or was that a recent type of development? No, my background is that when I um, when I was looking around when I was still at college as to what I wanted to do, because like a lot of teenagers, um, I went through, oh, I'm going to be this or I'm going to be that or I'm going to be the other. <laughs> um, and I'd set my heart on the fact that I wanted to get into um, fashion buying. Um, so there was a, a, a passion for fashion even back in those days. And I worked in a fashion boutique and, um, you know, at weekends and in the school holidays and, and the rest of it. But when it came down to it, I couldn't get onto um, a training scheme to become a fashion buyer. And um, I wasn't really prepared to settle for anything else. And and also the types of stores that I was looking at, they were the kind of the top end um, stores. And that's where I, you know, I'd set my sights ridiculously high. Um, and so I kind of fell into what I ended up doing. But um, which was accountancy and which is a long way away from fashion I appreciate that it's almost like a polar opposite um, but I was um, put forward for a position um, by one of my accounting tutors when I was at college and I was studying business studies he'd asked he'd asked me about it and I said well okay I'll go along for the interview um, and I ended up as I said falling into it but in a sense accountancy was a kind of place where I could be because it was back office, it was back end of a business and was for someone that was struggling with what I was, everything I was going through with my eating disorders to have been in a high pressured environment that a fashion buyer is in and all of a sudden kind of negotiating and the rest of it. I don't think I could have coped with that with the way that I felt about myself back then. So in a sense, I didn't push myself out of um, accountancy in, in that way. And I actually ended up staying in accountancy for 19 years um but that did include nine years of running my first business which was a an accountancy outsourcing business 
Um, and um, and I set that business up at the point when I'd been told that I couldn't have children back in 91. So it became my baby in a sense. And I really was in denial about the fact that um, I think that I, I, hadn't, I, I couldn't have children. And it wasn't that I was particularly maternal. And some of that may have been to do with all the hormones that were going on with the, the eating issues and everything as well. Um, but it was the fact it was taken away from me and it wasn't my choice. So it, that's why I, kind, I believe I went into that real denial stage and buried my head in setting this business up, making it really successful um, and forgot about my husband in that process. And the fact that he may also have been struggling with the issues of going through and accepting that we weren't going to have children together. Um, and so um, that's why I ended up then giving that business up because it came to a crunch point with my marriage and that uh, all through the 1990s, you know, I got my eating disorder stuff going on, the intense exercise going on, building a business up and totally ignoring the fact that I hadn't dealt with the fact that we weren't going to have family together. So it was a real pressure cooker <laughs> that was going on throughout that. So then, then I, um, I went back into corporate initially in finance and then in more general management. So, and then it wasn't until 2013 when I decided, as I say, I wanted to set up another business. And I thought, well, let me get into that fashion world. Um, and that's, um, I was going around looking for a business for sale and that's how I ended up buying the fashion boutique. Mm. Now did, um, the, your, your background with the eating disorders, your, um, your, your taught being more open about it. Did it, um, did it occur from the very beginning when you first bought the boutique? No, I I wasn't open about it to start with. And to be honest, when I first had the boutique and I was blogging and marketing that boutique, I kind of, I hid my personality and it wasn't an intentional thing in sense of wanting to hide the eating disorder and stuff. It was more about wanting to pretend or give the impression rather than pretend um, that the business was bigger than it was. So I didn't talk about me personally. I gave the impression that there was a, you know, there was a team behind it, which sure. is quite, a, you know, that's not an unusual mm -hmm. thing to have done, particularly back in, in that um, sort of time scale. Um, but it was, I was talking to a PR friend of mine and she was saying, bring your personality into it. And at first I did that by talking about me and sort of styling myself and stuff like that, particularly when I started to get into styling. But it wasn't probably until 2016 that I decided to, I think it was then that I decided to blog about um, Eating Disorders Awareness Week, which over here in the, in the UK um, is the um, last week in February. And that's when I decided to come out about my story. And I also started to come out about my story around that time, maybe a little bit afterwards um, at networking meetings too, when I was out talking to people. And oh boy, was that emotional to start talking about it at first in public in a room full of people. Um, but the more I spoke about it, A, the easier it became. Um, but it also then, I think, got me... Um, people started to relate to me a lot easier and why I was doing what I was doing in terms of styling. Okay. So then, so do you feel that how your, um, cause your outlook on your business probably changed as you were able to share your experiences? Yeah, I think, I think they did. It became, it became much more about my brand and who I was um, and who was behind that brand and why I was so passionate about having a body image, a, a positive body image, 
being confident about yourself. So yes, I, I absolutely do think that it changed my approach to the whole thing um, in that sense and made it my real goal to, and, and I used to um, be very into, well, I'm not used to be, I still am, but it's just about balance and, and what areas you emphasize. I was very into um, creating more diversity on the catwalks as well so that we reflect society on the catwalks. There's an amazing organization over here in the UK called Models of Diversity, which is all about um, representing society on the catwalks, whether it be um, differently abled people, whether it be people who are different body shapes and sizes, um, different ethnicities, the whole things, that's their mission, um, is to get away from this whole ideal stick thin model that has been so prevalent in our society for so long. So yeah, I did a fair amount of sort of kind of um, work in promoting that side of it as well. Mm. And do you feel that, does that help to promote, you know, you're promoting different body sizes, different situations. Um, have you, I don't have you encountered anyone who that has helped in terms of, of battling eating disorders or battling other struggles? Are you aware of any, anything like that? Does not aware of it, but I've had a direct influence on it. No, um, but um, I do get a lot of comments and feedback from clients that they, um, you know, they can relate to the fact that a I've been through stuff, but that also that I'm very much a promoter of um, it's not one size fits all, and we shouldn't all be um, trying to attain an unattainable um, body body shape, body size. Um, and you know, I've been very vocal about um, airbrushing models and um, you know, the types of things that creates this feeling of uh, impossible standards to attain that then um, increases people's negative feelings about themselves. Mm, interesting. I now there of a course body image has to do with with eating disorder. There are many different different aspects of it, as you've explained with your story. But in terms of what um, a lot of your, you basically kind of worked, worked yourself out of the eating disorder with, um, with some assistance, but mostly it was, you know, internal with you. Are there particular resources that you would recommend for people who are just struggling with, with any type of eating disorder, whether it be anorexia or bulimia or, or some combination of, of other eating disorders? There is a, the, I know there are um, organisations in the US as well, but obviously I'm, I'm based here in the UK and there is a, um, a leading charity here in the UK, which is called um, BEAT, which is all about beating eating disorders. And they um, have a great source of resources of whatever type of eating disorder it is. They have um, resources for people who may be struggling, for parents and carers um, who may be lost on how they help someone who is going through um, an eating disorder, um, awareness for um, teachers and um, people who may be caring for people. Um, but it's not, it's, it's obviously not all about children because, um, you know, eating disorders can affect anybody at any stage of their life. It's not just simply about um, the, the kind of, the stereotypical thing that we think about it being a teenage girl is going through a problem. It's far from that. So they have an enormous wealth of resources. And as I said, of all different types of eating disorders as well. So that's where I would, that's where I would signpost anyone in, 
in the UK. Um, I've also got a, um, a psychotherapist friend who, while she doesn't specialise in eating disorders, does see patients who um, struggle with eating disorders um, because she focuses a lot on helping younger women. Mm. Sure. And that's pretty unique with your situation is you were in, you were 17 when you were really, um, you know, that it really magnified itself. And then, you know, you were into it well into adulthood and in addressing that versus, as you said, the typical uh, teenage uh, situation. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, definitely. it was. But there's an awful lot of, um, I've read reports, there's an awful lot of older women who, um, haven't shown signs of having an eating disorder before, but start to develop it in later life as well. Um, I've not come across any instances of it. Um, but yeah, there are reports of that. And whether that's due to um, relationship breakdowns, um, bereavement, um, I, I, I really don't know. But, um, you know, that that's also, and of course, um, body dysmorphia and problems with men is becoming um, more prevalent as well. Um, particularly as men go and look at themselves and each other in the gym and but again they get fixated on ideas of ideal body shape without understanding that not everybody is built or made the same way. Sure absolutely and just you know really as you said and as you do in, in your current work really um, being appreciative and for, for your body image and feeling confident and I yeah. think you know for you and your work that's that's what it's about. And that's fantastic. I love it that you're focusing on that. Well, it's so important, isn't it? Because it affects every aspect of our lives. It, if you're not confident about the way that you, your appearance, the way that you come across, and it affects, um, affects you mentally, emotionally. I know it certainly held me back in, in my career. I didn't progress as far as I could have done in, um, in my twenties. Um, and uh, and also with your relationships with people as well. And then, of course, there's a, the, the physical side, too, that if you're just not comfortable with with who you are, it just impacts everything. And then, of course, there's the other side of it that I see occasionally. that I see um, mums who might be um, you know, struggling with their own issues or making comments about their own body shape or stuff that then can have an awful influence on the kids and the kids, their children and the way that their children feel about themselves, too. Mm, interesting. Yes, that's that's completely the social influence is is a big factor in in with body image and with with eating. Yeah. So now, what is as we wrap up here? Um, what advice or tips would you give for for people who are struggling with eating disorders, whether they're young, whether they're uh, you know later in life, regardless of their situation? Is there any particular of kind of words of wisdom, so to speak, to uh, to help people? Uh, yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I'm not, you've got to be ready to make that change uh, and accept there's a problem because until you accept there's a problem or recognize there's a problem, because you may not actually recognize there's a problem, but until you recognize it and accept it, then there's not much that anybody can actually do to help you. It's like any, you know, addiction or problem like that, that you can't actually help someone to change unless they're ready to make that change and that's one of the really sad and tragic things about eating disorders and and other addictions as well so it's but it's try and find someone who is going to be non-judgmental that you can confide in if you are ready to start talking about it whether that's you know going to a helpline whether that's um talking to, to just a 
not necessarily a friend maybe it's just it is a support line someone who isn't emotionally involved with you because I think it's you're not going to necessarily be able to open up to someone that is close to you um so I think it's it's being open to being able to talk about it and that might not actually happen all at once you might not be able to come out with the whole thing at once you might just kind of have a bit of a conversation with someone and then uh, withdraw again but yeah it's it's just find someone trusted to start talking about it um and then seek professional help when you're when and if you're ready to do that absolutely I love the just the kind of confiding in someone to begin with even if you're not ready to to engage in you know full-on treatment or full-on things you're you're kind of extending extending the lifeline so to speak and really um getting getting the even the emotional support or the the support from a friend or family member to begin with and that may may uh kind of spark the process it may well do but it's also about being as i said being careful about who you confide in because if it's someone that is too close to you um then that that you know they're they're going to be emotionally involved in you and emotionally invested in you and want the best for you um and I would also say to anyone who is worried about someone who's going through an eating disorder particularly in the UK to go and have a look at at Beat to go and talk to um to, to professionals about how you can best approach it with someone and how you can best deal with it rather than just kind of trying to deal with it because again unless someone is ready to deal with it they're not going to be able to, and they're not going to come to the party, and it's just going to create an awful lot of emotional angst and stress with everybody. And it could actually make that person, because someone who's going through an eating disorder is very manipulative, they can be quite deceptive, secretive, and it may actually drive it further underground, if you like, if you approach it the wrong way. Okay. So interesting, yes. And it's kind of a kind of a delicate balance, it sounds it like. Balance. You're right. So. Yeah. Wow, but I love how you you took that delicate balance and you ran with it. You got you worked, um, got the got assistance, got had that that transition to where you're you've got this wonderful career. You're being able. To, I love how you're able to serve people through style and really drawing on your experiences with with your eating disorder, with your your fashion experience. That's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, yeah it, it is lovely to come to kind of come full circle on it when you think that you know when I was 17 there I was wanting to become a, a fashion buyer and wouldn't have been able to cope with it and then now here I am in my 50s um, uh, helping people in that way and using my passion and also as you said my journey to be able to help people so yeah it it does feel pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic well Carol how can people get in contact with you for more information? The best way is through my website, which is um, carolahanson.com. That's Carol without an E. Um, so C-A-R-O-L-A-H-A-N-S-O-N.com. Um, and um, while my website isn't entirely up to date yet, um, I am now offering um, online services as well. So it's not just people um, in the UK and local to me that I can help. It is people on a global basis, which is really exciting, um, particularly as the world has changed so much in the last few months. Definitely. That's fantastic. You're able to offer your services regardless of, of where you are. That's fantastic. Well, Carol, it's been a pleasure. I, we really enjoyed hearing not hearing your 
your your struggles to begin with, but under really understanding that where where you've been and how that has really helped you over the years and how you're you're serving others. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it, Michelle. Um, it's been a great experience and um, yeah, wishing you and your audience all the best for the future. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to hit the like button and subscribe to be notified as new episodes become available. You can also visit our website at foodexperienceunplugged.com to check out some free resources on helping you develop healthy eating habits for life success.